Chapters 4 and 5 of Book 10 of Les Miserables, Volume 4 by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Robert Kuyper. Les Miserables, Volume 4 by Victor Hugo, translated by Elizabeth Florence Hapgood. Book 10, the 5th of June, 1832. Chapters 4 and 5. Chapter 4. The Ebullitions of Former Days Nothing is more extraordinary than the first breaking out of a riot. Everything burst forth everywhere at once. Was it foreseen? Yes. Was it prepared? No. Whence comes it? From the pavements. Whence falls it? From the clouds. Here insurrection assumes the character of a plot, there of an improvisation. The first comer seizes a current of the throng and leads it whither he wills, a beginning full of terror in which is mingled a sort of formidable gaiety. First come clamors, the shops are closed, the displays of the merchants disappear, then come isolated shots, people flee, blows from gunstocks beat against porte-cochere. Servants can be heard laughing in the courtyards of houses and saying, "'There's going to be a row!' A quarter of an hour had not elapsed when this is what was taking place in twenty different spots in Paris at once. In the Rue Saint-Croix de la Bretonneire, twenty young men, bearded and with long hair, entered a dram-shop, and emerged a moment later carrying a horizontal tricolored flag covered with crepe and having at their head three men armed, one with a sword, one with a gun, and the third with a pike. In the Rue des Nonandières, a very well-dressed bourgeois who had a prominent belly, a sonorous voice, a bald head, a lofty brow, a black beard, and one of those stiff moustaches which will not lie flat, offered cartridges publicly to passers-by. In the Rue Saint-Pierre-Montmartre, men with bare arms carried about a black flag, on which could be read in white letters this inscription, Republic or Death. In the Rue des Jeuneurs, Rue de Cadran, Rue de Montorgui, Rue Mandar, groups appeared waving flags on which could be distinguished in gold letters the word section with a number. One of these flags was red and blue with an almost imperceptible stripe of white between. They pillaged a factory of small arms on the boulevard Saint-Martin, and three armorers' shops, the first in the Rue Beaubourg, the second in the Rue Michel de Comte, the other in the Rue du Temple. In a few minutes the thousand hands of the crowd had seized and carried off two hundred and thirty guns, nearly all double-barreled, sixty-four swords, and eighty-three pistols. In order to provide more arms, one man took the gun, the other the bayonet. Opposite the Quai de la Grève, young men armed with muskets installed themselves in the houses of some women for the purpose of firing. One of them had a flintlock. They rang, entered, and set about making cartridges. One of these women relates, I did not know what cartridges were. It was my husband who told me. One cluster broke into a curiosity shop in the Rue des Villes Haudriettes and seized yataghans and Turkish arms. The body of a mason who had been killed by a gunshot lay in the Rue de la Perle, and then, on the right bank, 
the left bank, on the quays, on the boulevards, in the Latin country, in the Quartier de Halles, panting men, artisans, students, members of sections read proclamations and shouted, To arms! broke street lanterns, unharnessed carriages, unpaved the street, broke into doors of houses, uprooted trees, rummaged cellars, rooted out hogsheads, heaped up paving stones, rough slabs, furniture and planks, and made barricades. They forced the bourgeois to assist them in this. They entered the dwellings of women. They forced them to hand over the swords and guns of their absent husbands. And they wrote on the door with writing, The arms have been delivered. Some signed their names to receipts for the guns and swords and said, Send for them tomorrow at the mayor's office. They disarmed isolated sentinels and national guardsmen in the streets on their way to the town hall. They tore the epaulets from officers. In the rue de Cimitaire Saint-Nicolas, an officer of the National Guard, on being pursued by a crowd armed with clubs and foils, took refuge with difficulty in a house, whence he was only able to emerge at nightfall and in disguise. In the Quartier Saint-Jacques the students swarmed out of their hotels and ascended the rue Saint-Hyacinthe to the Café de Progrès or descended to the Café des Sept-Billards in the Rue des Maturines. There, in front of the door, young men mounted on the stone corner post distributed arms. They plundered the timber-yard in the Rue Transnonian in order to obtain material for barricades. On a single point the inhabitants resisted, at the corner of the Rue Saint-Avoy and the Rue Simon-le-Franc, where they destroyed the barricade with their own hands. At a single point the insurgents yielded. They abandoned a barricade begun in the Rue de Temple, after having fired on a detachment of the National Guard, and fled through the Rue de la Cordière. The detachment picked up in the barricades a red flag, a package of cartridges, and three hundred pistol balls. The National Guardsmen tore up the flag and carried off its tattered remains on the points of their bayonets. All that we are here relating slowly and successively took place simultaneously at all points in the city, in the midst of a vast tumult, like a mass of tongues of lightning in one clap of thunder. In less than an hour twenty-seven barricades sprang out of the earth in the quartier of the halls alone. In the center was that famous house, numero cinquante, which was the fortress of Jeanne and her six hundred companions and which, flanked on the one hand by the barricade at Saint-Marie, and on the other by the barricade of the Rue Maubeuse, commanded three streets, the Rue des Arquis, the Rue Saint-Martin, and the Rue Aubry-le-Boucher, which it faced. The barricades at right angles fell back, the one of the Rue Montorgie on the Grand Tourandarie, the other of the Rue Geoffrey Longavine on the Rue Saint-Avoy without reckoning innumerable barricades in twenty other quarters of Paris, in the Marais, in the mont saint Genevieve, one in the Rue Menilmontane, where was visible a porte-cochère torn from its hinges, another near the little bridge of the Hôtel Dieu, made with an écossais, which had been unharnessed and overthrown three hundred paces from the préfecture of police. At the barricade of the Rue des Menetrières, a well-dressed man distributed money to the workmen. At the barricade of the Rue Grenetat, 
a horseman made his appearance and handed to the one who seemed to be the commander of the barricade what had the appearance of a roll of silver. Here, said he, this is to pay expenses, wine, etc. A light-haired young man without a cravat went from barricade to barricade carrying passwords. Another, with a naked sword, a blue police cap on his head, placed sentinels. In the interior, beyond the barricades, the wine-shops and porters' lodges were converted into guard-houses. Otherwise, the riot was conducted after the most scientific military tactics. The narrow, uneven, sinuous streets, full of angles and turns, were admirably chosen. The neighborhood of the Halls, in particular, a network of streets more intricate than a forest. The Society of the Friends of the People had, it was said, undertaken to direct the insurrection in the Quartier Saint-Avoy. A man killed in the Rue de Ponceau, who was searched, had on his person a plan of Paris. That which had really undertaken the direction of the uprising was a sort of strange impetuosity, which was in the air. The insurrection had abruptly built barricades with one hand, and with the other seized nearly all the posts of the garrison. In less than three hours, like a train of powder catching fire, the insurgents had invaded and occupied, on the right bank, the arsenal, the mayoralty of the Place Royale, the whole of the Marais, the Poppincourt Arms Manufactory, La Galiotte, the Chateau d'Eau, and all the streets near the halls. On the left bank, the barracks of the veterans, Saint Pellegris, the Place Maubert, the powder magazine of the Du Moulines, and all the barriers. At five o'clock in the evening they were masters of the Bastille, of the Lingerie, of the Blanc Manteau. Their scouts had reached the Place des Victoires and menaced the bank, the Petit Père barracks, and the post office. A third of Paris was in the hands of the rioters. The conflict had been begun on a gigantic scale at all points, and, as a result of the disarming domiciliary visits and the armorer's shops hastily invaded, was that the combat which had begun with the throwing of stones was continued with gunshots. About six o'clock in the evening, the Passage du Soman became the field of battle. The uprising was at one end, the troops were at the other. They fired from one gate to the other. An observer, a dreamer, the author of this book, who had gone to get a near view of this volcano, found himself in the passage between the two fires. All that he had to protect him from the bullets was the swell of the two half-columns which separate the shops. He remained in this delicate situation for nearly half an hour. Meanwhile the call to arms was beaten. The National Guard armed in haste, the legions emerged from the mayalties, the regiments from their barracks. Opposite the passage de l'Ancre, a drummer received a blow from a dagger. Another, in the Rue de Cine, was assailed by thirty young men who broke his instrument and took away his sword. Another was killed in the Rue Grenier-Saint-Lazare. In the Rue Michel-Comte, three officers fell dead one after the other. Many of the municipal guards, on being wounded in the Rue des Lombards, retreated. In front of the Cour Batave, a detachment of National Guards found a red flag bearing the following inscription, Republican Revolution, numero 127. Was this a revolution, in fact? 
the insurrection had made of the center of Paris a sort of inextricable, torturous, colossal citadel. There was the hearth. There, evidently, was the question. All the rest was nothing but skirmishes. The proof that all would be decided there lay in the fact that there was no fighting going on there as yet. In some regiments the soldiers were uncertain, which added to the fearful uncertainty of the crisis. They recalled the popular ovation which had greeted the neutrality of the 53rd of the line in July 1830. Two intrepid men tried in great wars. The Marshal Lobau and General Bougot were in command. Bougot under Lobau. Enormous patrols composed of battalions of the line enclosed in entire companies of the National Guard and preceded by a commissary of police wearing his scarf of office went to reconnoitre the streets in rebellion. The insurgents on their side placed videttes at the corners of all open spaces and audaciously sent their patrols outside the barricades. Each side was watching the other. The government, with an army in its hand, hesitated. The night was almost upon them, and the St. Mary tocsin began to make itself heard. The minister of war at that time, Marshal Soult, who had seen Austerlitz, regarded this with a gloomy air. These old sailors, accustomed to correct maneuvers and having as resource and guide only tactics, that compass of battles, are utterly disconcerted in the presence of that immense foam which is called public wrath. The National Guards of the suburbs rushed up in haste and disorder. A battalion of the Twelfth Light came at a run from Saint-Denis. The fourteenth of the line arrived from Courbevoir. The batteries of the military school had taken up their positions on the carousel. Cannons were descending from Vincennes. Solitude was formed around the Tuileries. Louis-Philippe was perfectly serene. End of chapter 4 Chapter 5 Originality of Paris during the last two years, as we have said, Paris had witnessed more than one insurrection. Nothing is generally more singularly calm than the physiognomy of Paris during an uprising beyond the bounds of the rebellious quarters. Paris very speedily accustoms herself to anything. It is only a riot, and Paris has so many affairs on hand that she does not put herself out for so small a matter. These colossal cities alone can offer such spectacles. These immense enclosures alone can contain at the same time civil war and an odd and indescribable tranquillity. Ordinarily, when an insurrection commences, when the shopkeeper hears the drum, the call to arms, the general alarm, he contents himself with the remark, There appears to be a squabble in the Rue Saint-Martin, or in the Faubert Saint-Antoine, often he adds carelessly, or somewhere in that direction. Later on, when the heart-rending and mournful hubbub of musketry and firing by platoons becomes audible, the shopkeeper says, It's getting hot, hello, it's getting hot. A moment later the riot approaches and gains in force, he shuts up his shop precipitously, 
hastily dons his uniform, that is to say, he places his merchandise in safety and risks his own person. Men fire in a square, in a passage, in a blind alley. They take and retake the barricade. Blood flows. The grape-shot riddles the fronts of houses. The balls kill people in their beds. Corpses encumber the streets. A few streets away, the shock of billiard-balls can be heard in the cafés. The theatres open their doors and present vaudevilles. The curious laugh and chat a couple of paces distant from these streets filled with war. Hackney carriages go their way, passers-by are going to a dinner somewhere in town, sometimes in the very quarter where the fighting is going on. In 1831 a fusillade was stopped to allow a wedding party to pass. At the time of the insurrection of 1839 in the Rue Saint-Martin, a little infirm old man pushing a handcart surmounted by a tricolored rag in which he had carafes filled with some sort of liquid went and came from barricade to troops and from troops to the barricade, offering his glasses of cocoa impartially, now to the government, now to anarchy. Nothing can be stranger, and this is the peculiar character of uprisings in Paris, which cannot be found in any other capital. To this end, two things are requisite, the size of Paris and its gaiety. The city of Voltaire and Napoleon is necessary. On this occasion, however, in the resort to arms of June twenty-fifth, 1832, the great city felt something which was, perhaps, stronger than itself. It was afraid. Closed doors, windows, and shutters were to be seen everywhere, in the most distant and most disinterested quarters. The courageous took to arms, the poltroons hid. The busy and heedless passers-by disappeared. Many streets were empty at four o'clock in the morning. Alarming details were hawked about, fatal news was disseminated. That they were masters of the bank, that there were six hundred of them in the cloister of Saint-Marie alone, entrenched and embattled in the church. That the line was not to be depended on, that Armand Carrel had been to see Marshal Closel, and that the Marshal had said, get a regiment first. That Lafayette was ill, but that he had said to them, nevertheless, I am with you, I will follow you wherever there is room for a chair, that one must be on one's guard, that at night there would be people pillaging isolated dwellings in the deserted corners of Paris, there the imagination of the police that Anne Radcliffe mixed up with the government was recognizable, that a battery had been established in the Rue Aubry-le-Boucher that Lobau and Bougot were putting their heads together, and that at midnight, or at daybreak at latest, four columns would march simultaneously on the center of the uprising, the first coming from the Bastille, the second from the Porte Saint-Martin, the third from the Greve, the fourth from the Halles, that perhaps also the troops would evacuate Paris and withdraw to the Champs de Mars that no one knew what would happen, but that this time it certainly was serious. People busied themselves over Marshal Soult's hesitations. Why did he not attack at once? It is certain that he was profoundly absorbed. The old lion seemed to scent an unknown monster in that gloom. Evening came, the theatres did not open. 
The patrols circulated with an air of irritation. Passers-by were searched. Suspicious persons were arrested. By nine o'clock, more than eight hundred persons had been arrested. The prefecture of police was encumbered with them. So was the conciergerie. So was la force. At the conciergerie, in particular, the long vault, which is called the Rue de Paris, was littered with trusses of straw, upon which lay a heap of prisoners, whom the man of Lyon, Lagrange, harangued valiantly. All that straw rustled by all these men produced the sound of a heavy shower. Elsewhere, prisoners slept in the open air in the meadows, piled on top of each other. Anxiety reigned everywhere, and a certain tremor which was not habitual with Paris. People barricaded themselves in their houses. Wives and mothers were uneasy. Nothing was to be heard but this, Ah, oh my God, he has not come home! There was hardly even the distant rumble of a vehicle to be heard. People listened on their thresholds to the rumors, the shouts, the tumult, the dull and indistinct sounds, to the things that were said. It is the cavalry, or those are the caissons galloping, to the trumpets, the drums, the firing, and above all, to that lamentable alarm peal from St. Marie. They waited for the first cannon-shot. Men sprang up at the corners of the streets and disappeared, shouting, Go home! And people made haste to bolt their doors. They said, How will all this end? From moment to moment, in proportion as the darkness descended, Paris seemed to take on a more mournful hue from the formidable flaming of the revolt. End of Book 10, Chapters 4 and 5